episode 169 of the Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into the Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today during this special week of people who actually have a real connection to the actual escape is Tony Hoskins, aircraft engineer. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Looking forward to listening to to all of your little anecdotes that you might have about the real story. I mean, we've been talking for 34 weeks about the movie itself. Uh, today we'll obviously discuss a little bit about the movie, but we will, the most important thing this week is to, to get some of the, the real stories so that uh, our listeners can get more of an idea of what really happened. Uh, I mean, the Hollywood aspect of it is great, but uh, we all know that, that there is more to it than that. Uh, so... I, I hope that you'll be able to enlighten us a little bit. So, uh, uh, minute 169 begins with Strachwitz uh, hearing another car approaching and goes all the way till we get to see Von Luger entering a car as he's watched by Ramsey and company. As we were discussing yesterday, Gestapo basically showed up and they've uh, walked into Von Luger's office area. We're not quite sure 100% what they're about to say or do or anything like that because uh, everything happens inside and we don't get to see that. We only get to see what happens on the outside. While Strachwitz is standing there waiting by the, the front door, he seems to hear a car approaching and takes a look. I see another staff car come in. I like the way that it skids as it's making that turn. It looks like someone who really is in a rush to, to get rid of his cargo or whoever is inside. You know, we don't know. And at this point, we uh, see that the, the car then swerves again and sh- makes a quick stop right in front of the hut where uh, Strachwitz is standing on the outside. Then we see the, the driver get out, also hastily. And then uh, right behind him, we get to see Hiltz, Steve McQueen, taking out, getting out of the, the car. He's got his uh, hands handcuffed. But as always, he's got that big smile on his face. That's something, it's one of the things that they're never able to wipe off of, of his face in this in this movie. I mean, I found it interesting that he actually gets to ride back in style. You know, we, we, we saw how uh, the rest of them all came back you know, disheveled in, in a back of a truck or whatever it is, and he gets his uh, uh, first-class ticket all the way back. Well, I mean, large, largely, his, his arrival is probably slightly more accurate <laughs> with regards to the uh, to the original events, but, uh, yeah, he, he definitely arrives in style. Why, why do you think it's uh, more... Well, why do you think it's more accurate? Well, so, I mean, when you read the reports, most of the guys who had been captured were held at just one prison. And they were taken back in small numbers, mostly in German staff cars. So there's there's a couple of reports of lorries collecting groups of men at the time, but they were being taken off to be to be murdered. So Rem- um, remind me what a lorry is. A lorry is a truck. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh. oh sorry. Yes, of course. No, yes. that's okay. Uh, it's yes. just it's my my Americanisms. Sorry. Yeah. So so as you saw, the other guys arrive earlier in the film uh, and they're getting out the back of a truck or even right back to the start of the film with the trucks turning up and churning them all out at the beginning. Largely, those that were taken off to be murdered were taken off in 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 groups later on. The very early ones uh, to be murdered were taken in pairs. But later on, they were taken in groups of sort of three and four at a time to be more efficient. Some... <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? But, you know, uh, uh, you know, as you then get later, because the film obviously condenses down an awful lot of things that happened in over a number of weeks, which they portray almost within days. Right. So to to have an individual turn up in the car, particularly once all the announcements have been made about how many people have been shot, is is far more accurate. So yes, in this instance, that's probably 
of course, it, whilst his hurried arrival is probably a little bit over the top. Maybe they were uh, maybe they were just trying to rush it because they knew that they were coming in at 172 minutes. So you know, you might as well rush the scene a little bit to, to try and cut out maybe a minute or so. Potentially, but then, you know, he's got Steve McQueen in the car, so it's it's. Uh, well, he's yeah. not he's not driving. No, but you, uh, he was a speed man, wasn't he? So yes, uh, yeah. But no, it's, 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 I think that's probably a fairly accurate representation of how reasonably individuals would have been brought back. Oh, wow. So, so basically you're saying that Steve McQueen's sitting in the back screaming at the stunt driver to go faster, faster. You're not, you're not going <laughs> fast enough. Make a skid. Go this way. Who knows? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I, think, I think the guys, I think it was very unknown what their fates were. Most of them were expecting to be taken back to a camp, but obviously this was a very different situation. I suspect the air around a lot of things was different to previous escape attempts they'd had. So, but yeah, I think individuals coming back or in pairs in a car at a time is probably fairly, fairly, fairly closer to, to reality than the rest oh, wow. of the film would tell. Okay. That, that's great to know. Okay. So basically, Hiltz gets out of the car, and then if you pay close attention, the officer that gets out right behind him actually hits his head as he's walking out. Maybe maybe he's a stormtrooper in Star Wars also. Uh, you know, the same uh, actor. I don't know. If, are you familiar with that? That in Star Wars, there's there's a scene where stormtroopers are walking through uh, a door, and the door isn't isn't pulled up high enough, and one of them actually bumps his head. The actor bumps his head. I, I wasn't, uh, but I do like a good Star Wars film, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get it more immersed in the story and miss the finer details. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're watching a movie a minute by minute, you, you sort of notice details a little bit better. I um, bet, yeah. Yeah, right. At, at this point, uh, then we see the uh, commandant's door open up and Van Luger exits. Does not look very happy, obviously. And he had a number of, of uh, people behind him. Uh, so we see uh, Posen come out, but uh, Posen is, is uh, preceded by Steiner. The SS officer who comes out and then he looks at him and at this point we get to see that uh, Schachert salutes Van Luger and then uh, Steinich actually says he's not to be saluted he's no longer in command now I mean that that's a little strange from from my perspective because you know the you know the whole phrase of, of uh, respect the rank not the man you know if someone yes, has a particular course. rank you still are going to salute them uh, even if they no longer are in command so yes it's, indeed it's a little strange for them to say that. if you were to say that, that uh, you know, he's been stripped of his rank, that's another thing. But to say he's no longer in command, as far as I'm concerned, as I know, and uh, I mean, I'm not a military expert, but based on what I know, that I think that's more just for the dramatic uh, effect at this point. Yeah, because I think, I think the whole thing's trying to lead up to suggesting an outcome that's likely to happen, but um, we know in reality wasn't, wasn't true, it didn't come to fruition, but obviously the, uh, it, it's right near the end of the film, the audience is trying to think what's, What's going to happen is punishment. It's 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 Germany. You know, are they are they going to bring about some particularly harsh? Um, are they going to are they going to execute reprisals? him or not? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and I think the film is done in a way to try and let the audience come to a, their own conclusion, right? Uh, without actually suggesting anything. So, right. Based, um, on, based on what I know, in reality, uh, you know, he he wasn't executed, and you know, he was he was uh, just stripped of his command. And then he, I think I think he actually ended up later on being put on trial for war crimes. I remember well, correctly. yeah, kind of. So yeah. so he actually, again, like I said, the film try and condenses down weeks of what happened. So obviously the, 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 the Gestapo did arrive at the camp after the escape and everything was looked into. And I think actually von Lindner was, was pulled up for some sort of, uh, there was some sort of black market deal going on with food, etc. When, when they, when they started to really investigate what was going on between the commandant and the camp guards and everything else. And that's the only thing they could really pull him up for, but it was, it was. You mean that butter that, that they found earlier on? Well, <laughs> 
<laughs> yes and no. I think because, you know the the real von Lindner. So obviously he's, he's Lugo in the in the film and Lindner in real life. You know he was not a fan of the Nazi movement at all. He was very sympathetic. I mean you've got a, a decorated and and uh, several times wounded officer from the First World War who moreover joined up in the Second World War through necessity rather than anything else. So you know he he was in a sympathetic position with the the prisoners at the camp. But obviously you know it's been a major security breach with the fact that so many have gone out. Hitler's obviously very upset about it all. Sends the people in to try and see if there's, you know, how can this, this camp is supposedly, you know, you can't escape from it. So how have all these people got out? And it was over a period of weeks that they looked at him and eventually, yes, he was relieved of his command. And I think he actually ended up commanding a unit of soldiers in the defence of Sargon with the Russians advancing. And then he ends up surrendering to the British. I think he testified at the trials that went on afterwards. And he ended up being locked up in London for several years. So we didn't actually let him go out of prison until I think about 1947. I think he was interned in in the UK for. So um, you know we held on to him for a while. But and then obviously he died just before the film actually came out. So um, in real life he never got to see the he never got to see the film. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. He... I'm not sure that that's something he would have wanted to relive. Well, yeah, I mean, but you say that. I mean, there were there were people, you know, in the history of films, we've talked about the Colditz film as well, there were people who were ex-prisoners that were all involved with this. There were ex-prisoners involved with, obviously, the Hollywood version of The Great Escape. Yeah, of course. And, you know, whilst it, whilst it meanders a little bit from it, um, I think, actually, the film is, if you were to show it to people who don't know the story, they will get the crux of what happened the finer detail is lost amongst certain things. But, you know, it all relates to certain people. Some of the characters are combinations of a number of different individuals, mm -hmm. but it gets right. the story over in, what, 170 minutes? <laughs> 172 minutes. <laughs> 172 minutes uh, to people who don't necessarily know or understand the story. Right. So in that aspect, I think it does a good job of what it needs to do. Yeah, there's no question about that. Continuing along with this, uh, actually, I wanted to ask you, did, have you ever seen the uh, pseudo-sequel to this? This movie? I have not actually, but I believe in that one he. In that one, they actually shoot executed. him. They shoot him. Yeah, exactly. I think it is. Yeah, but no, I haven't seen it. I haven't mm. seen it at all. Okay, because that one is is uh, much closer to to the real events. I mean, they there they they use the real names also. You know, you have uh, Roger Bouchel instead of Roger Bartlett, and you know they they, they have the you have uh, John Dodge. John Dodge was his name. John John uh, the Artful Dodger. Well, this is. Uh, I think I th thought it was John. I think so. Yeah, right. I think yeah. Right. So he's if if you get a chance. I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit longer than this movie. It's it's actually three hours long, and but but it's also fascinating. It's not as good as this. It's not as Hollywood. It's it's much darker. But uh, there, oh, okay. but there, they spend a lot more time on the events after the escape. Right. You know? Yes. Uh, and, like I say, it's very compressed in this in yeah. in, in the Hollywood film. Um, you know, you're talking of three, three to four weeks worth of timeline spread seemingly in about 48 hours. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, and, that's it's a, and that's if you're only talking about the escape. We're not even talking about the, the, the digging. I mean, the digging, we all know it took about nine months to do all the digging, even though they had to stop for part of the winter because of the, the weather and stuff like that. You know, the way that the, the movie depicts it, it takes just like a month or two. Or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And also, they, they they let them go out in the middle of the summer. Yeah, it's all, yeah, it's always summer. It's selling just three of the films. So. <laughs> There's never winter. <laughs> so uh, at this point, we get this. Von Luger then takes a look at uh, Steinek after he says this, and then he looks over and he sees Steve McQueen. You know, he sees Hiltz actually showing up, and then Hiltz gives him a very interesting look. He's somewhat amazed at what actually is going on here, and uh, if. 
if you pay attention, there's there's a guard right behind him that has this really, really funny look on his face because his eyes are shifting back and forth. You know, I guess it's just an extra that, that didn't know where he was supposed to look at the time because he's, he's looking, he's trying to look everywhere but at the camera, so it's pretty funny. And then we see uh, Von Luger walking down the steps towards Hiltz, and then we get a, a short little conversation between Hiltz and uh, Von Luger where Hiltz says, well, the job just didn't work out for you, huh? <laughs> Which, uh, you know, his nice uh, American or, or Steve McQueen cynicism the whole way. And then Von Luger says, you were lucky, Hiltz. And then Hiltz says, lucky, because I didn't. And then you see it just hits him. He realizes what's, what happened. He realizes that a lot of them didn't get back. And he goes, how many? And, you know, you see a, a somewhat somber look on his face because he... He understands that he really is lucky about what happened. And Von Luger then responds 50. And then at this point, after he says 50, we see that Steiner looks at him and uh, looks at him in a very disapproving manner that, uh, you know, maybe you're not supposed to be discussing what, what actually happened. And then Von Luger says to Hiltz, you know, anyone who remembers their first conversation uh, many, many months ago when we discussed this. So uh, where Hiltz said that he's planning on seeing Berlin before Von Luger. So Von Luger's line at this point is, it takes us back to, to that early scene. It looks, after all, as if you will see Berlin before I do. And uh, then we get a reassuring face on uh, Hiltz because he knows that, that what's, he knows what, what's probably in store for Von Luger, as you discussed earlier. You know, the, the, they're giving the impression that he's about to be taken off and shot somewhere even though he's just given, uh, in real life, as, as you mentioned, he's, he's given a uh, lesser detail to take a, something, uh, you know, with, with a, I guess, a, a lot less responsibility. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to look over 600 prisoners. Yeah, cool. And at this point, Von Luger then walks towards the car, and then they, they open up the, uh, the, the staff car, you know, so we get to see uh, the interesting way. I, I always find it really funny, the, you know, the staff cars that have just two doors, where you have to move the seat in order for everyone to get into the back seat. You know that 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 that's something that's rare. I mean, I, I growing up in the '80s, I, I remember that there were cars that you did have that, but nowadays it's very rare that you're going to have a car where you have to pull the seat back. You, you, oh really? Oh, no, it, it, on this side of the of the water, dear boy, it's it's really common. I've I've got a Mercedes with uh, with exactly really? that now. That's not very old. Yeah, two door. Yeah, it's, it's it's a common thing on this side of the water. Okay, I guess I guess I'm just talking to my ass again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it's 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 fairly common. We don't have doors anymore that hinge at the B post and open forwards. We don't have suicide doors anymore. We do have quite a number of cars where, yeah, you get you get get in the back via the front. So, mm. okay, uh, all right. So I guess I guess I'm I'm just used to to used to four door sedans as yeah. opposed to two doors. All right, it happens. But it's, it's interesting what you're saying. You said, I mean, that that little bit, that little conversation, I think is very much a probably a play to Steve McQueen, really, because you know. Uh, it's, it's suggesting that he is knowledgeable from the commandant's attitude that you know people have been shot or have not survived the escape attempt. You've got to realise at that point in 1944 there had been a lot of escapes by then, but there had never really been reprisals. People had been killed whilst escaping, but that was normally. I mean, for um, Sinclair at Coldex, for example. He was shot whilst trying to run away because they, obviously they were trying to shoot him to slow him down, uh, disable him, etc. And they shot and killed him. At that point, prisoners of war had not been shot post capture as retribution for their actual escape. So if you had escaped and not been shot actually as part of that process of getting out of the camp, then normally you would be returned often to a different camp, but quite.
quite possibly to the camp that you had you had just escaped from. So you know it would be fairly unknown or fairly wide the mark to have uh, prior knowledge that the likelihood of people escaping if you hadn't actually been shot getting out the tunnel, which Hiltz would have known because he was there at the tunnel at the tunnel exit, wasn't he? At the uh, yeah. in the film, you know, then he would have known that you know it, lots had got away beforehand and hadn't been shot. So it, you know it, it's. It's leading on to something you know, it was unheard of. The retribution for this 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 escape attempt was unprecedented. And you know, subsequently, notes went around to camp saying, you know, the tide has changed. They're ignoring the Geneva Convention. You know, you are likely to end up in a lot of trouble, even if you are not shot just getting out the camp. Uh, so probably best not to do it. Which was the effect that the Germans wanted, really, because it ties up huge amounts of manpower. But uh, yeah, so I think it was a little play to Steve McQueen there for ensuring that he was more knowledgeable about the the risks involved with escaping than possibly uh, in real life that would have been um, been on the minds of those who were doing it. Hey, if it works, why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, it, if it's if it's able to to deliver to to the audience uh, what what they want to deliver, then I guess that that works out. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. And then uh, to end off the minute, basically we you know we see uh, Van Luger sit down in the car, and then Steinich uh, then joins him and sits down in the car, and then we we get to see a shot of Ramsey and a whole bunch of the other prisoners just looking on as they're uh, as as they're they're getting into the car, and that's pretty much how this minute ends. But our our story is not over at that point. Because the reason that we have you here, Tony, like we've had all our other guests this week, is to actually give us more insight and information about the real story of what happened in Stalagluft 3. So first of all, why don't you tell people what is your connection, what's your fascination with, with this story? If there is a well, connection, I, mean, I know there is, but... It, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it actually starts when I was really young, so I, I obviously never saw the film the first time round because it came out almost 20 years before I was born. So <laughs> it's not, um, it's, it wasn't something that I could get to see in the cinema. I, um, I think, I think, I, I think I've had one guest the entire time that was that was old enough to see it in the theater. Uh, really? So, yeah. oh, okay, okay, yeah, no. So I, I so you're you're you're, you're in good company with that. <laughs> That's right, but I mean, traditionally over here, you know, the Great Escape was like um, Christmas Day, Boxing Day you know viewing it was always on the tv Thank yeah yeah i mean so it's it's a it's i don't want to say it's an institution type film but you know everybody knows the great escape film uh is something you watch on the holidays sort of thing so yeah so i'd seen it from you know being a little boy etc and i'd grown up um in rural oxfordshire and yeah always been fascinated with history and everything. wind the clock on by 30 years um and nowadays i'm i'm fortunate enough to restore spitfires and airplanes from this era for a living and i've been writing books and other bits and pieces but about three years ago nearly four years ago actually um, I found and located a Spitfire that had actually been flown by one of those people who was in the Great Escape, and he was sadly he was one of the the men that was executed as a result of the uh, of getting out of the camp. And I didn't know very much about him. His name was Sandy Gunn. You looked him up, and he was listed as a name as one of the fifty, but there was very little else about this this one man. So I set out, having found his aeroplane to research his life and find out what, what his story was. Okay, I want to stop you for one second. How did you find his airplane? If he was if he was shot down, his airplane should have, you know, exploded or something, didn't it? Well, I, well, I went looking for it because, you know, the, the thing was, I was trying to... We, we celebrated in 2018, we celebrated 100 years of the Royal Air Force. Okay. And I was working with a documentary filmmaker to make a documentary about 100 years of the Royal Air Force. And over here... The Spitfire is really iconic. 
So we said, let's try and tell a little bit about Spitfire. But what you get with these stories is you get, if you, if you have like granddads or great granddads that were in the war, and you'd go and talk to one great granddad about a particular event, and he'd tell you one story. Perfectly true. But you can go and talk to another granddad about the same event and tell you a totally different story. Again, perfectly true. And you keep on going on. You've got lots and lots of stories, which makes it very difficult to sum up an entire event. So I thought, Ferrari F100, let's find an item that has lots of stories attached to it. And that item has to be an aeroplane because it's REF 100. And uh, the Spitfire is so incredibly well known across anybody in the street. You walk along the street and say, here's a picture of Concorde, here's a picture of a 747, here's a picture of a Spitfire. They'll generally be able to tell you what it is. So I said, let's go and find a Spitfire that has lots of stories attached to it. But there aren't Spitfires just lying around waiting to be found. Oh, there aren't? No, you know. So, you know, you're almost uh, sort of 70 years after the war and you're trying to find a Spitfire. So um, most of the ones have been dug up that are in the UK and France and Germany. So you start to look into Scandinavia, where it's a bit more remote, a bit more difficult to get to. Um, and obviously all of the losses are published. So I sat at our public records office in London for months going through all of the losses to try and see what had been lost in, in sort of Norway and Sweden that had a story attack. And I came across this photographic reconnaissance Spitfire, so they'd been flying unarmed, so they didn't have any guns to protect themselves. And the name Sandy Gun was next to it, prisoner of war, and then died whilst a prisoner of war. Hence why I then looked him up. He was listed as one of the 50. I thought, my word, there's an incredible story behind that. But his, his part was not known. It was just born in Scotland, murdered, uh, in, in Poland. So you then start to look through the rest of it and I found all these incredible people who had flown this same aeroplane. There were racing drivers, there were jockeys, there were people from across the whole Commonwealth. Before him? So yeah, before him, yes. Yeah. So these basically five guys had all gone up to Scotland to hunt for the Tirpitz and they'd all flown this one aeroplane. So I had all these stories that tied in and I could research a lot of them because the racing driver was really well known and the, the, the Grand National winning jockey was really well known. But Sandy Gun still wasn't. So I then threw myself into researching all about the Great Escape. Uh, I had his diaries. I had his letters from the camp back home and correspondence that was going backwards and forwards and the packages that his roommates had put together to send back to his family. Um, and then I started reaching out to other families of people who had been in the Great Escape to try and piece together the story of his life in the camp because he was the fifth prisoner to arrive in Stanislaw III. It was a brand new camp. Wow. So he was there right the way through the whole thing. And, you know, he'd started off, he'd started off digging Tunnel Tom, uh, which obviously was a tunnel that had been discovered. And he'd been involved with the security and uh, a couple of other bits and pieces around the camp. He was, he was, make, he was quite good at making cafetiers for, for doing coffee. So everyone seemed to go <laughs> to him for the camp for doing that. And because he was Scottish and the Red Cross used to send across porridge oats, they used to go to the Scotsman to make up their porridge oats properly with the with the klim that they got from the from the German rations. So it was uh, it was really interesting uh, you know, just to get his story and, and put it together over the course of his time there. But, um, yeah, sadly, it's there was very little. When you go through all the hundreds of thousands of pages of documents on the, the investigation of the murder, there was very little that they could find out about him because, of course, the Russians had gone through. Uh, it was several years later. Uh, and most people either wouldn't talk or weren't around to talk anymore about what happened. So sadly, of all of the, the cases that were brought against people that they could find, 
they couldn't attribute Sandy Gunn to any particular German officer who pulled the trigger. Widely speculated that we know who it was, um, but there was no evidence of that at the time. And, you know, so it, it unfortunately, sadly, remains a mystery. But um, Oh, wow. Yeah, but it's you know it's been amazing to to research. It's been nearly four years of my life now researching this one man and his time in the camp and what happened to him. And you know we found his family and distant family. And I've spoken to lots of uh, families of great escapers. And I, I, I actually I wrote to the last two great escapers when they were still still alive. Both sadly declined an interview because at that point in their lives they were saying it was pretty it was pretty bad. We don't really want to go there. They're memories from a long time ago. So respectfully, we'll decline the, the opportunity for a, a talk, which I totally respect. I get that. But it, yeah. it was very sad that when those last two gentlemen passed away, I thought information that only they know that I would give anything to find out about what it was like in that room that night as they were just about to go. And, and they, they never discussed it with, with their, their children? That you could get that information from their children, obviously not from the direct source, but it's still well as close as you're going to get. There are there are some historical television interviews from about 20 years ago, but they don't go into the detail. For example, um, I found several reports that put together to say that you know you, you see the the collapse in the tunnel. Don't you? When they, you know they're they're going through, and the big bag knocks it, and it knocks a bit at the time. They have to go. Right. And no, well, well, that that doesn't happen in the movie, but it happened in the original script, and it happened in real life with Cedric's uh, or the the character named Cedric. You know, his he had this big valise that uh, that caused the cave in in the middle. We we discussed it when when it happened because that scene was, wasn't filmed or or was was cut out. Well, this is it. So yeah. Sandy Gunn, there was a report that Sandy Gunn was in a tunnel collapse that night and had to be pulled out and dug out of the tunnel collapse. So, you know, it's it's really interesting for me because their places all move around in the tunnel. So trying to work out who who was where and what and in which order they were, because Sandy Gunn was number 68 in theory to get out. Uh, and his friend Hubert was 80, but Hubert wasn't in the tunnel when it was discovered. So... 76 had gone he should have been in the tunnel but he wasn't so they were all moving around their positions it was somewhat chaotic that night but um you know we really want i wonder why yes (laughs) but i really want to find out because you know i've just got one written report from tony bethel who was a who was a great escaper who said that no sandy was involved in a tunnel collapse going out that night and had to be dug out didn't say why was it a bag was it an elbow was it just the people going through i will never sadly know and uh and that's 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 quite heavy. <laughs> so, so, so then, how did you find his plane? Oh, so, uh, so simply having located that, Google is a wonderful thing. You put in the registration of the aeroplane and see how many people have been talking about it. And there was there was a note to say that a microlight club, you know, not far away, had some bits hanging on the wall in their clubhouse, uh, and a few other people had looked for it. But you know, there was no record of this aeroplane having turned up anywhere. It wasn't in a museum. The Ministry of Defence, UK Ministry of Defence hadn't had a confirmation that the aeroplane had been recovered apart you know during all of their post-war searches for things so i thought well maybe it's there and i ended up writing to the locals in this town which was where sandy was captured and i ended up going out there they knew where there were some bits of wreckage that you know people over the years would say there's an aeroplane crashed up there and in the end we got all of the elders together in the village with coffee and cake and sat them all down and said right talk about it and, you know, there were three or four people who had witnessed the shoot down and witnessed the crash who could tell the story. And we slowly pieced it all together as to roughly where it was. And then we went and did a lot of walking around hills looking for bits of metal sticking out the ground. 
And uh, yeah, there was basically 70% of the aeroplane sitting in a bog on the side of this mountain. So I came, came back to the UK, put together some colleagues, and we went out about a month later, 10 of us and a load of people from the town. And we spent a week digging it out the peat bog and carrying it down the mountain piece by piece because you, you couldn't get a truck up there. There were no helicopters. The helicopters are 100 miles away and involved in uh, you know mountain rescue and stuff like that. So you don't tie them up for picking up bits of Spitfire for hill. But yeah, got everything apart from the tail section because the tail section had come off when it had been shot down. But yeah, both wings, the fuselage, the engine, uh, lots of it, and that's now all slowly being rebuilt to fly again. How how close? How, I mean, how much? What percentage of the plane would you say is has been rebuilt? Well, we got 70% of a Spitfire out of the ground. It's a bit difficult to say yet as to how much will be in because, for example, we've got both wings, which are crushed but largely intact. Um, the fuselage burnt quite heavily and the engine obviously got pushed back into it. But we've recovered quite a lot of items from the fuselage, particularly the lower fuselage, because if you imagine we've sat in a Spitfire, everything from your bum down we recovered. But everything up from that is all really lightweight. So whilst it's there, it's paper thin or it's corroded. But every fuselage frame we've got has got some parts that are original in it. Um, and what we have spent a lot of time doing is recovering other parts that are original. So on the fuselage side, probably about 10 to 15% of the fuselage is original AA-810 Sandy Spitfire. But then all of the rest of the systems that I've got are original systems. So I've got original rudder pedals, original control column, original hydraulic selector for the gear. I've just got an original throttle unit. We've got all original instrumentation. So overall, probably about 40 or 45% of the fuselage, whilst it won't all be original AA-810, it will be original wartime build material um, with some structure around it. And you know, we're now uh, just coming up to two years into the build and we've got a completely brand new back end because we didn't find the original back end, but I put original equipment into the back end. So it's got some original Spitfire stuff in it. And we're now working on the fuselage all the way through to the back of the engine. We've got an engine that's being worked on because the original engine shattered when it hit the ground. But then I've got original propeller unit that's come out of the Battle of Britain Spitfire. That will go onto the front because obviously Sandy's one is a bit bent. <laughs> so um, it's a bit difficult to straighten that. Um, but we've got original Battle of Britain propeller unit going on the front, and we're about to start work on the wings soon. So there's a lot of work to bust down the original Sandy Spitfire wings, and we'll see what's reusable out of that uh, to go from there. We'll have to put brand new main spars in it because it's a safety, flight safety item that everything else. Plus, of course, it's got a great big cannon shell through one of the spars, so, so that doesn't work. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll reuse as much of the wings as we can as well. Well, and, and the expectation is that eventually this will be able to fly or just to have it yeah. in the museum? So we're, we're hoping it will fly towards the end of 2023 or early 2024. That's the wow. hope. So... Uh, it's all a factor of money and time. And uh, the more money you have, the quicker it will happen. The less money you have, the longer it will happen. But we're getting there, getting there steadily. Oh, wow. Very cool. Now, uh, have, you, have you read uh, Brickhill's book? I read it an awful long time ago, and it is slightly more detailed and closer to things of the film, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, no, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, in anyone's opinion. You know, yeah. and, and also, obviously, it, it was written much closer to when it happened. And, you know, the, the movie is somewhat based on the events that were as they were played out 
in the book. Now, do you know if uh, Sandy Gunn is mentioned in the book at all? Yes, he is. Yeah, his name appears once in the book. Yeah. Yes, and, and... I was just about to tell you. I just I just found his name. So yeah, I, know you... I, I was testing you. Yes. <laughs> I was yeah. testing to see how much research you really did on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I have. I have pretty much every book that you can find that's in English. There are several books that uh, I know a chap who's having one translated at the moment. There's a very good Polish book about the Great Escape and Sargon, and I'm very looking forward to <laughs> reading that translation when it comes right. out. But, uh, so, and, and so, do you remember yeah. what passage uh, Gunn is mentioned in the book? In that one passage? Oh God! Now you're testing me. <laughs> Go on, read it to me. Go well, on. basically, it's 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 after the, uh, the they were all captured. So it says on April sixth. Lux. Oh, is it being threatened with being beheaded? No. Lux, Lux took another no, six Lux. from Gorlitz, Grisman, Gunn, J.F. Williams, Milford, Street, and McGar. They were cremated at Breslau. But it was not until April yes. 13th that Lux took Cookie Long from, from Gorlitz. His urn shows that he was cremated at Breslau. So basically, the only mention of, of uh, Sandy Gunn in the book is uh, the date of when he was uh, apparently shot, which was April 6th. Yes, that's correct. So um, now we've got, so I've got letters from Tony Bethel that cause of the order that they were taken away. Um, in that time as well, there's another book. I'm trying to remember the author who wrote that one, but two of them, including Sandy Gunn, were threatened with being beheaded uh, during their interrogations. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, it, there's 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 lots of stories that come around because what they did do, the guys, when they were all in their prison room, and you see it to an extent in the film, they're all put together in one sort of like dungeon mm -hmm. type space. Uh, and they know to each other. Well, from the letters we've got, they all told their individual stories to each other of their escape stories, which is why we know a bit more. Because particularly those that survived came back, knew the story, wrote to the, we and wrote to the families of those who had been murdered. Mm. So Sandy Gunn's family actually collect, collected four or five different sets of letters from four or five different uh, prisoners who had been on the escape, who had been recaptured, who then were saying, "Look, I was in prison with your son. He told me X, Y, and Z." which is why we managed to piece together some more of the information. And, and but you, do you know how he got captured? We think we do. So he didn't speak German, and uh, he was escaping. His escape partner was Mike Casey, who also didn't speak German. And basically, the report that we have is that they, they felt that if they, they had to travel by train, they had to, but they were likely to be caught sooner or later if they travelled in the train. So Gunn and Casey travelled underneath the trains, sitting on the bogies of you know amongst the wheels under the train oh, tracks wow. to travel. Now the report we've got, there's a lot saying, or oh, they were captured just down the road, but he was actually on the run for nearly 48 hours. And we've got some reports of them being caught uh, up near Sassnich, up in the top top of Germany. Now to have got there, they'd have had to take a train into Germany and then back out of Germany to head up to the ports. And the area that we've been given as a potential area that they were captured which was suggested by one of the other prisoners because they mentioned that they had been that prisoner had been captured the day after two other guys caught at the railway site so what we think was happening is they were possibly transferring at the railway sidings from one train to another try and get up to the port were challenged and obviously couldn't speak any german so were caught so that's that's what we think happened with with both of those gentlemen. oh wow fascinating all right. Uh, do you have anything else uh, you want to enlighten us about? No, I think I think you know if your if your followers are interested in knowing more about what we're doing, then uh, if they have a look at uh, if they can they can Google for Sandy Spitfire or Spitfire AA eight one zero, and that will take you to the website where we've got 
good social media presence and everything else on rebuilding Sandy Spitfire. And as we find out information about him, we, we've, we've put it out there. And uh, there is a book on his life, which is titled Sandy Spitfire, which um, they can get, which uh, we're, we're working on the next edition which will have the final story of the restoration of all his aeroplanes. At the moment, it finishes at the point that we find uh, the aeroplane and we find the nephew of Sandy Gunn. Um, but we'll release the next book in 2024, 2025, which will have all the story of the restoration as well. But uh, yeah, we're out there if they want to find out more about Sandy Gunn. Wow, very cool. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk about the movie and also talk about the real story. It was uh, very enlightening for me. Hopefully our, our listeners also felt the same way. No problem at all. And if, and, if, and if they want to get in touch with you personally, what's the best way? They can get me through the website. We've got a generic um, info at spitfireaa810.co.uk that will will go into our main server and then I can pick it up from there. So, yeah, uh, I'm within two to four hours of any email contact if people want to get in touch. Very cool. All right. And, uh, and anyone uh, that's listening, if you go, please uh, rate, review and subscribe on any podcatcher they might be listening to the show on. You can uh, send us an email, thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler. And our Twitter account is GreatEscapeMXM. So until tomorrow, where we will have another fascinating story about the real events. Tally ho! Tally ho, Rob.